Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today is the editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and game designer, Jim Dunnigan. Also joining us is the associate editor of Strategy Page, columnist and author, Austin Bay. Welcome, Austin and Jim. We're talking about Jim's uh, massive productivity in uh, wargaming. Uh, today, we're going to talk about two different types of war games. Uh, we're going to talk about both the political side and the what was called the monster side. But before we get to that, Jim, I wanted to talk about your feedback system a little bit. Uh, SPI did something that nobody else was doing. Uh, almost nobody else was doing in any place else was you were asking your users or your your customers, like coming from the computer industry, I call all customers users. Uh, but your customers, you were asking them for feedback every issue. What prompted that and how successful was it? Well, it made sense. I mean, you know, there were always this from early on, there were discussions what games to do next. And I, and the, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, Mr. Ockham. I said, well, why don't we ask the people who buy them? And it was extremely successful. In fact, a few years on, we had we had a regression and a factor analysis program going, written in COBOL of all things on our IBM machine, which wasn't supposed to be possible. But if you ran it over the weekend, you got results. Um, and uh, we did a regression analysis after we'd had enough data, you know, of uh, the feedback suggestions and the games we and the games we published based upon that. And and the correlation was like. Point nine something, which is unheard of. Well, not unheard of, but it's unusual. But it simply made sense. I mean, a lot of people didn't like some of the games, but most of the games were bought, most of the games sold for each title were sold in the initial rush. So a lot of people said, well, this isn't what I was expecting. Now, that was rare. I mean, that wasn't that the norm was, yeah, this is what I was looking for. And when we made a mistake, not doing what they, they wanted, we mentioned outgoing mail. That's what outgoing mail was part of the feedback. Feedback went both ways, and the outgoing mail was basically responding uh, to uh, you know the feedback results, both the uh, the statistical data, and they had we had a comment section. And I sat there, and and they had I had them uh, separate all the ones that had written comments, and I just sit in there, and it take me an hour or two, you know, each month. <laughs> Or, or, and uh, and I'd scribble down anything that seemed to be, you know, uh, pertinent, and I'd respond to that in outgoing mail, and that created a bond. In fact, a couple of times, we ran a, a control uh, to, on our system, uh, because obviously the people sending in the feedback <clears throat> Uh, response was only a one or two percent of the uh, of the uh, people getting the magazine, and we wanted to see how that varied. So we basically stuck a dollar bill in in these in these uh, in these uh, uh, random sample of people we were sending to say this is a control survey. Uh, we want to see how you know accurate yada yada. And we had you know let's face it, war games were the hobby of the overeducated. They always were. So most people understood that, or they could ask somebody who what the hell is you know was he talking about and uh and it was bing it was right on uh the only variations were uh because of age and that made sense because there were def there were definitely uh you know age related differences among gamers at which we again we published we had we, we had to ask that question regularly and um and we, we and we tell people all right you know the kids like this the you know the older guys like that yada yada 
Um, and this is why one reason why we got into the monster games because somebody who the hell was it? Somebody else was starting it. I yeah, it was, it was a GDW was a game, and yeah, was G- really, GDW uh, started it, and uh, was it GDW? Yeah, with a, a game on Operation Barbarossa. It's uh, Danang Usten or something like that. My Germans are that good. Game. Well, anyway, there we we had we threw their games into our into our feedback. The feedback uh, score rating wasn't just for SPI games; it was for anything that was out there. There weren't that many games in those days, and we noted that they were they scored very high. And I ran the uh, the analytics, you know, the the factor analysis, which is basically uh, regression analysis, everything against everything. That's why it takes all weekend to run on the uh, on the mini computer we had. And uh, sure enough. Uh, uh, there was a large enough group of gamers who wanted that t- type of game, and we started grinding them out. Uh, I mean, the technology wasn't, you know, that difficult. Uh, it simply was a more expensive game, and uh, we were wondering if that would really sell. And it turned out it wasn't a flash in a pan, and they became a regular, not, you know, didn't dominate our, 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 our catalog. Uh, but if we selected the ones, we basically feedback them. We said, do you want a monster game on this, on that? Now, a lot of them said, nah. But the ones that said, yeah, we went ahead and did. That's why we hadn't ended up with a monster game on War in the East, um, which was quite an effort to do. Now, um, now was that but, your, personally, your first one that you did? I probably. I mean, again, I would. I would. I was the designer of Last Resort. If, if nobody else could do it or finish it, uh, and of course, one of my favorite anecdotes is one time we were really up against the wall. I forget who, whose game you know blew it. It was way behind schedule, and we needed a game real quick for an issue. And I did a game in twelve hours, and I think that was the uh, uh, the one where he had uh, Battle for Germany. I think it was the one where you played both sides. Oh yes, yeah. it's just called German. Germany, I think. Yeah, Battle for oh, Germany. Whatever. whatever. Yeah. And it was very popular. And I, that had been kicking around in my head, so it wasn't done entirely from scratch. But I basically sat down and said, all right, I'll have this done by dawn. And uh, and I basically had the game designed. Yeah. I typed up the rules. And then I turned it over to the developers, and they had a lot of fun with it. But it was kind of a you know inside yeah. joke. You know, if you're really stuck, you know, if you got... 12 hours leeway, Jim will finish it for you. I said, no, no, don't, don't, don't plan on that. But uh, by the way, that was so popular that, uh, that there have been, uh, and I'm going to talk about this in our, uh, our next episode with you, but there have been a number of games that, uh, decision games who, you know, eventually ended up owning strategy and tactics and SPI. Yeah. Uh, they did a deluxe version of Germany. Yeah. Yeah, they used the feedback also. They carried on with that, that tradition, and it, it served them well. Uh, and that's why they've stayed in business all these years. They're still, they're still going, as far as I know. Yeah, they're going um, They're going pretty well. They've uh, uh, Strategy and Tactics is doing well, and they've introduced two other magazines that they do. Yeah. Yeah, they, they basically adapted to the market. They realized there wasn't a large enough market for people willing to buy a game with a magazine. So the other the other games are just the, 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 uh, the, the magazines. And they found out there was a market for that. That they could get into uh, newsstands or magazine stores. So they had a, a, a fair amount of, uh, you know, uh, newsstand sales. Um, but again, the feedback works. Whoever uses it, I mean, ask the customers what they want. Now, what we did do, one exception to that, and we told people this, I says, one game, a SPI game a year will be editor's choice. 
And that's how you got the plot to assassinate Hitler and scrimmage. But we also got some great games. <laughs> uh, I forget the successes here. Remember your failures because you learn more from them. Um, but political games are something I always hope to uh, surmount, as it were. And I did after a fashion at the end when I did Empires of the Middle Ages. That was a very political game. Uh, and it did very well. I think I won a big award at one, at one point at, you know, at, at last year I was around. Um, and uh, uh, so there is, a, there is a market for that, a mass market. I mean, there's obviously a, a, a government market. And that's why I was working with Andy Marshall towards the end. Uh, in fact, I turned it all over to Mark, and then he marched in Booz Allen, and he took that with him. And I would meet with Mark periodically while he was down at Booz Allen, actually, until he retired. So I guess that was all through his career, Christ, almost 20 years. Um, and we chat. And, you know, he was basically carrying, you know, the lessons learned at SBI down to Booz Allen, and, and it paid off for them. Uh, they basically got to be known for somebody who did games that work. Uh, did what the customer needed. Uh, that's one reason I added in War Games Handbook, uh, especially in yeah editions two and three. I think there were only three editions. Uh, third, the third editions in print, um, and I added a larger section on uh, on government gaming, military, yeah, you know, professional gaming, and um, the other 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 people in the business. You know, we always refer to that. I I regularly get requests for. Uh, could we reprint just this section? I said, yeah, sure. Uh, that's why, you know, I retained rights. That when the game went out of print with the regular publisher, I got the rights back and put it back in print. And I was pretty liberal in, in letting them, because I knew the people who were asking me. It wasn't any scam or anything like that. And it was very useful. Mike Garenbone, who is now, uh, well, he's big in Moors, the Military Operations Research Society, which is where a lot of the military war gamers, you know, can gather, as it were. Um and that's become a very big deal. Uh, and they, they use that chapter. And that chapter got expanded between chapter two, edition two, edition three. And edition three, it basically, they still, they still refer to it. I mean, it hasn't really aged out in any respect because I talk about all different kinds of games. And I explain why manual games still have a role to play because, you know, that's the way you do your prototype. You know what the hell works and you know why it works. Because when they get them into computer version, uh, it's a black box. And, and not, again, a lot of these things get classified and I can't really access them anymore. Um, but they, uh, but I kept telling them, I said, you got to have a, 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 a turn F2 key or something like that into, uh, into the truth you know, a window where you, it'll it'll tell you the algorithm that's that's in play that's making this decision. Now, a lot of Pentagon developers were a little leery of that. You know, <laughs> they'd rather not people see how the sausage was made, because as it as it turned out, Al Reem, uh, uh, he left the SCI. He was the head of the uh, the Warsaw Pact, the uh, uh, Russian division, as it were. Spoke very good Russian. Had a huge library of Russian, you know, war books, as it were. And um, I got to know him well. And he said at one time the, the I think it was the the miter I think he was working with got a contract to, to uh, send an expert around to basically look into the source code, the inner workings of the war games they were using. And in some and, and a lot of important people in the business were eager to have Al come in because they knew it was a problem, but they really couldn't say anything unless they had proof. Al gave them the proof. A lot of those games, I won't name names, but mainly because I forgot them, but a lot of them were just 
bullshit. Uh, there's no other way to put it. Uh, people were faking it and basically covering up their mistakes. You know, they felt as long as the 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 output satisfied the customer, uh, they were they were home free and they could you know cash their check you know guilt free as it were. Uh, but Al understood, as did Andy Marshall, uh, that if you can't if you can't validated, which is a term I we used, as it were, um, uh, you know, it's no good. And, of course, the argument in the Pentagon gaming was, well, we're talking about future war and contemporary war. Well, I demolished that, you know, with SPI because they started using our games like, uh, what was the one, uh, the first one we did in 1973, 74, uh, uh, geez, Mech War, something like that. I forget the name. But anyway. Mech War 77. Was that the might, name of it? Might have been it. But anyway, yeah. the um, it was then at the request of some instructors at the infantry school of all places. And I just said, look, send me the following you know, manuals. I knew some of the names. The others, I forgot the names and what have you. And um, and we'll do it. And this was all unclassified you know, uh, material. Uh, and they were amazed at how close it was to the classified data. And... Um, and it was close enough to be realistic. And I said, look, you know, you can, this is manual games. You can take them behind into a secure room and add your own classified mods. Who's going to know? I'm not going to complain. And they started doing that. And at one point, they had me down. I forget where it was. I don't know if it was the infantry school. But they said, you know, we got a problem with this one thing we modified. And I said, look, I ain't got a security clearance. I deliberately stayed away from a security clearance. It, it causes so many headaches if you're not in the, in the business, as it were. And uh, so they started passing notes back and forth, you know, without actually just, you know, uh, exposing the classified data. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't say, oh, yeah, I see what's going on there. I said, you got to do this, fix that, or change, or, or, you know, play with this back and forth, et cetera, et cetera. And the problems got solved. But now... You know, 20 years later, 30 years later, you have enough people in the military who are familiar with games, if only computerized war games, um, but the technology games. In fact, a large segment uh, of the uh, of the manual war gamers uh, are still people in the military because they find that in a pinch, as Austin pointed out when he was down with Southcom and they needed a, a study of the, uh, the, what the Ecuadorian, who, how, what else was it? Was, uh, we did it in 36 hours. And exactly, it was, uh, it, it exactly. was you know, I use the term paper dolls, meaning yeah. that we do it a, a manual game, usually yeah. on a p- you know, piece of paper on that. And uh, well, that, that's a long story, but yeah, it, but, Jim's but, right. but the bottom line is when it got up to Washington, it was better than the, the other models they were trying to use. And it was in, you know, within 48 hours. I think the general, the, the, the sink, uh, you know, commented, you, you get a medal for that, didn't you? Commendation medal. Uh, but he was impressed. And so there you had another four-star. That's, that's actually true. I got yeah, I another got four-star a, believer. That wasn't, it, wasn't, it, nice. it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, what is it that it's, uh, I got, I was just down there for, I think, a, a month of supposedly, uh, well, no, I was, I, I was down there to, uh, to get a, a joint uh, staff credit as a, as a lieutenant colonel, and I was there to help actually work uh, on an after-action report <clears throat> that so I was really hired as, as a writer, and this war breaks out, and they... Uh, between Ecuador and, and Peru, and won't go through all the uh, bizarre ways. That it, next, next thing you know, I'm working with the uh, J5 uh, on the on this uh, uh, what's going on 
how do we deal with it, come up with something that incorporates uh, uh, that we can use as, as policy because no one has really looked at this and there were a lot of interesting little wrinkles uh, in, in, in involved. I think I got a joint achievement medal, Joe. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But again, that, and, that, and I was, you know, in, speaking of that, in 77, again, this was a, a, a signature moment. Uh, Andy Marshall had a huge, you know, get together. A conference, the Leesburg Conference, and I'll never forget his opening comments. He said, you people, and he wasn't looking at me, have never given me anything I can really use. And then he started going in about validation and what have you, and then I was the last speaker. And I basically explained what got Andy, why Andy was so enraged, as it were. And I said, look, guys, you've got to produce a game that that has you know, that, that can be validated against reality. And I explained how you do it with, uh, with uh, uh, existing battles, Korean War, whatever. Oh, the Arab-Israeli War. That, that woke a lot of people up. I says, we predicted the Arab-Israeli War. Uh, we had a game in process. And the Israelis had people down at our shop. Once the war broke out, uh, you know, basically, well, they were there before when we were developing it. They obviously were interested because that was a hot, you know, area, as it were, the bar live line. And uh, and they were amazed at how well we did without classified information. I mean, we had a few tips, you know, from one of the guys. They couldn't really give us classified information. But when we wanted, we were looking, for example, for the mobilization centers for these Israeli units in the, in the uh, Sinai, if there was a major thing. And so we didn't make any egregious mistakes because the guy said, well, maybe not there. And... Um, uh, and uh, the uh, they basically felt it was a you know a very important tool, and they also realized they had war gamers you know in the service. A lot of them, as it turned out, and uh, and they apparently mobilized them to do you know quick gaming. Uh, they have a whole uh, they have a whole department, as it were, doing games. A lot of them are classified Israeli only, um, but that's where it all started. They didn't really know. They didn't really believe that was possible. And when they saw the, uh, you know, the uh, the Arab-Israeli war games with the scenario about the the potential, you know, uh, war in Sinai, uh, they were convinced. They said, "My God!" And then they had the kid, an armor officer who was working with the uh, Israeli UN delegation. He was pissed off. He couldn't fly back and join his unit. Uh, but those are the sacrifices you make. And. Um, I lost track of him, but I expect he, you know, rose up and, and stayed with the uh, the war gaming because it turned out to be a very useful tool. And they actually still had. Pro- I did find out they had problems where a lot of the people who weren't really into the war gaming said, "Nah, it's not going to be like that." And the war gamers were consistently right. They says, "No, no, no, no." When you game it out, you know, this is these are the problems we get into. And they've gone through several reforms, you know, since then, uh, even since the, 206, uh, the 2006 war with, uh, with Hezbollah. Um, and they've, they've reorganized and, and, and retrained and what have in their troops. And that's all based upon war gaming, uh, you know, future wars, how they're going to be fought and have, and I have you. And that, I think, is one reason why they're, they're, they're kicking uh, Iranian butt all over the place um, in Syria right now because they, they've war gamed out. Uh, I'm hypothesizing here. They work in doubt what the Iranians can do, what they can do, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like playing chess. There are always a couple of moves ahead of the Iranians, which ticks off the Iranians. No one. They are not happy with 
being beaten by the Israelis. Uh, of course, they were quite happy about it before the revolution because they were allies with the Israelis. And now the damn Arabs got the Israelis, all the Semites together. Um, so, Jim, and, what, uh, let's talk about a couple of your other uh, monster games here. Um, one of them that's right on the edge, you know, they they actually have a definition for uh, now for what a monster game is. It has to have a thousand counters and a, at yeah. least two maps. But one of them uh, that you did that that is in that category and is still popular is uh, Vakdam Rhine. Yes, yes. All right. Now, here's the one thing, the one and the central truth about monster games. They are regular sized games expanded. In other words, when we tested monster games, most of the testing was done by just literally taking a, a normal game size you know, board, as it were, cutting it out of the map, as it were, or marking it off, and playing out just that section to test the mechanics. We, we did not test the entire game. You know, uh, you know uh, it simply was impossible. But by using that method, knowing how the mechanics work and they were accurate, we could, we could validate the, the results. You know, it's like we had those games with the, uh, what do you call it, the France 40 system I invented. Well, that was invented for, well, anyway, that, that operational level of games, which we did, Christ, half a dozen or more games, Destruction of Army Group Center, um, uh, you name it, you know. And they were all successful because they had a validated system, and it was all on the same scale and what have you. Uh, but all those monster games were simply normal size games that were proven to work and uh, just expanded. Now, you had to add additional factors, take into account strategic needs, because the, those were operational games expanded. You were linking a whole bunch of, you know, half a dozen or more operational level games together, and you had to have... Uh, uh, you had to have a strategic system uh, to to uh, to reflect that, and that was actually the hardest part of doing the monster games. Uh, for the um, war in the east, we even got the computer involved uh, because we had to work out a logistics and production system, and that went on for you know over, over a couple of years, and we basically worked that out, worked out the algorithm, and then cranked it literally, wrote all software and cranked it through a, the computer many times in order to get something, again, that could be validated, that could be tested against, you know, historical reality. And that's why that was so accurate. I mean, it's a bear to play. And I, I realized the only way, I know a lot of people played these games, those games solitaire. Now, that's a sucker for punishment. But they, people didn't really think it was punishment. They were simply playing, uh, and this is what a lot of people really wanted. They said, they, I got these great operational level games on the Eastern Front or whatever, especially the Eastern Front. That was the largest geographically, uh, geographic and in terms of manpower, you know, front in World War II. And, uh, and they know that all these, these operations, different operation level, in effect, games were interlocked with one another. Uh, and uh, they just wanted one big game that did it. And as, as and in addition, you know, took care of the historical impact of logistics and uh, and uh, casualties and what have you, uh, and that's what War and East did, and it did it very well. But even the 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 large scale, the monster games, the first ones out, were basically on civil war battles. People basically wanted, they liked the idea of a lower level, uh, you know, a civil war game. Um, where you could get into the you know the details as, as it were of the tactics and what have you, um, but they wanted to do the entire battle, and for that you needed a monster game, 
and that's where it all started. Now, I, I never spoke to the developers at some of the others at GDW. I assume we were all on the same page, you know, unconsciously, you know, great minds think alike, because all their games had the same characteristics as ours. They had the mechanics that could work. I mean, and some players did that. Some players, and as we, when we mentioned that, they would simply block off a section of the map and they were, all right, we're just going to play the, the, the asthma campaign or something like that, or, or Kursk. They could, some guys you know, would fight Kursk on, on, the, uh, on the, uh, the War in the East thing um, and then take the results of that and feed it into other scenarios. I mean, they, the, if you played the old monster game, you do that automatically. Um, but that's all it was. The, in fact, uh, GDW, what they eventually did was they had a series called Europa. I don't know if you remember that. And yes, they were producing yes. it one game at a time, but they were all interlinked. I exactly. do not know if they finally achieved their goal of doing all of Europe. But I think they did. Uh, you know, that was the goal of the Europa series is that yeah. eventually you would have all these uh, games uh, that weren't linked together that you could play. Now, the one thing that's interesting about the monster games from SPI, uh, one that you didn't directly work on, one that uh, Berg did was the campaign yeah. for North Africa became a became known in pop culture because it was featured on the series Big Bang. Uh, yeah. Uh, one of you know a show about nerds and the nerdiest thing they did was play campaign for north africa <laughs> all right that was that was a one-time event and i basically told berg not that i had to encourage him i says go nuts uh you know if you can handle it you know and you can basically get it down on paper we'll do it and they had all these logistics rules which were incredibly important for uh, north africa that was basically a logistics war um, he who could move the, the, the supplies basically controlled the uh, the campaign. Um, but it was so incredibly complex. Now, I always believed in simpler games, and, and basically I, I applied that to the monster games. I mean, the, the monster games are simply a bunch of simpler games put together with a uh, logistic, you know, a strategic uh, module, you know, in backing it up uh, to, to in basically... Uh, respond accurately to what's happening in all your 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 operational you know campaigns uh, to reflect you know the running out of manpower or your supplies. Uh, uh, the big decision, in, for example, for Germany during World War II was they didn't mobilize their their like we like the Allies did, especially the United States, uh, until uh, late 1943. Uh, they finally put the economy on a war footing. That's when Speer, you know, took over, and that that had had that uh, that drastically increased productivity, and kept them in the war. Um, the only problem they had, because they weren't using they weren't using the the operations research tools like we were, they could not get away from you know Besser, you know, designing something, over designing it. And they always had a a, 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 a uh, vulnerability when it came to logistics. You know, they would produce, you know, the Tiger tank and the Panther tank were obviously superior vehicles, but keeping them operational uh, was their weak link because they broke down more often. The Sherman tank and the T-34 uh, were both very reliable uh, compared to the German tanks. Uh, and the, in fact, the, the the Russians they liked the Sherman, even though it was inferior in many ways to the T thirty four, because it was faster. Uh, it was even more reliable than the T thirty four, 
and they basically use the the Sherman tank as a as as, as a uh, exploitation tank. You know, once the uh, the heavy armor, the KVs and the T-34s had had broken through the front line, they had a couple uh, you know, a, a, a core, uh, which is basically an armored division. You know, it's a it's a, it's a unit you know, with you know, four or five brigades, mostly armor. And uh, they had the everybody was on trucks or on on tracks, but basically the Shermans led the way because they were they were blasting their way through the rear area. They weren't going to run into too many uh, you know Shermans or Tigers, uh, and the and the important thing is reliability and speed, and that was really the key to a lot a lot of a lot of the exploitation of their of their battlefield victories because the Germans are very good at mobilizing their reserves and plucking up holes. But if if the if the exploitation force was so damn fast, by the time you got there, they were already deeper into your rear area. Uh, you were in deep trouble. The Germans never had a Sherman tank. And in fact, by the end of the war, once they upgraded the gun on the, the Sherman Firefly, the one with the long barrel, high-velocity high 76-millimeter uh, gun, I th- and, that, and it was the British who basically pushed that, um, you had a tank in the hands of uh, veteran tankers could defeat the uh, the especially the Panthers, uh, and there were several battles late in '44 where uh, you know a, equal numbers of Shermans versus Panthers. The Germans lost because their crews were not as experienced. A lot of them were in their first uh, battle, uh, whereas the American tankers had survived a lot of battles. These guys knew what the hell they were doing, and their tactics were very effective because they perfected them under fire. And they just wiped the uh, our revenge. I think was one battle which is noted as a classic. Uh, uh, you know, uh, repeated. You know, in the Arab-Israeli wars, where you had the experience of the Americans in somewhat inferior armored uh, armored vehicles. You know, uh, just uh, slicing right through the Germans, uh, who had you know they had better equipment, but they had poorly trained or less well trained. You know, crews and commanders. Uh, and again, that 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 uh, that basically uh, made clear how important the quality of the troops was. Now, SPI got started right around the time they dropped the draft. So you had an all-volunteer army. And that's I don't know how much war games influenced that, but I know when I was doing that project for the army, with which Austin got uh, you know uh, exposed to, uh, doing some games for them, I had a big argument with them over the human factor. And, uh, you know, what have you. And, and my, the first response was, well, you don't have a problem with that. I says, yes, you do. But if you want the game to, you know, ignore that, you know, you're paying for it. You got it. But I do it under protest. Well, uh, the my protest, you know, was sustained, as it were. People remember. They say, well, we got problems with this. And I says, well, the designers, they warned us that, you know, well, you got to basically take into account the human factor. One thing they were already doing, a lot of people had accepted this. After the volunteer army came into into play, they started with the uh, national training center, which was 100 percent realistic. As as the, as the Russians even joked when the when the Cold War was over, he says we knew you had the best armored brigade in the in the Red Army, you know, out there at the NTC, the you know the uh, the up the up four brigade, um, and uh, they were really jealous of that. And of course, after the Cold War ended, they. By and by, after about a decade, they set up their own national training center. But the problem with the national training center approach is you need money. So the Chinese have actually done more with that than the Russians could because the the Russians are perennially broke and the Chinese are not. And that's why that's the thing you have to watch when you're trying to analyze the 
growth in Chinese combat power, not the number of modern tanks or modern aircraft they got, but are they letting their pilots fly enough hours, NATO standard hours, you know, 150, 200 hours a year, um, uh, and are you basically letting the, the tank crews, uh, you know, the ground combat troops train in realistic conditions? They are doing it with the aircraft. They haven't been able to do it as much with the ground forces because they're still highly dependent upon, you know, two-year conscripts. Um, they're trying to get away from that, but again, it's money. It's cost money to have everybody a volunteer. Um, and in effect, the Chinese army, especially in the Russian army, uh, their units are never fully capable because they spend half the time training up raw recruits. They lose half their people or a third of their people uh, every year, uh, and they have and they they lose them all at once <laughs> because they have this deal where the Russians started it, where they would intake new new draftees twice a year. So twice a year you had this huge disruption where you'd lose, you know, most of the conscripts went into the, uh, went into the army. Uh, so the army took the brunt of this, and they, they had select units which had fewer conscripts, and like the group of forces in eastern Germany. You had fewer conscripts there, or guys who agreed to stay in an extra year. You could always volunteer like that and get extra brownie points when you got out, you know, if you wanted to get a government job or something like that. Uh, but they basically had the equivalent of an all-volunteer force in the group of forces. And that's what made those guys pretty scary. Uh, the trouble was the Russians had never solved the combat, the operational level logistics problems. And right until the end, their, their solutions to that was to load up the, that's why you saw those extra oil barrels on the backs of their, of their tanks. Uh, made it great for, you know, great targets as well, because they were not bulletproof or armor-proof. Um, and, but, but they basically had to have enough fuel to reach the Rhine. <laughs> without resupply, uh, and that was their their cue. And towards the end of the war, they did war games using a lot of. They have their own system of war game, correlation of forces. But they also incorporated towards the end. I know it because there were we constantly had people from the Russian embassy <laughs> coming down buying you know all of our new games, which the FBI later told us was illegal. I said, well, only if they take them out of the country. And they kind of looked at me, you know, said, come on, be serious. But anyway, they. Um, yeah, the SBI games were classified as munitions uh, towards the end of the Cold War. I couldn't believe that. But the FBI was serious about it, but they really couldn't stop it. Just made it more difficult for the Russians to get their SBI games. But they got them, and they copied them. And towards the end, and I heard this from Al Reem, who knew a lot of the, knew of the Russian war games experts, and they all sorts of interesting anecdotes about how guys would do a, a new study of the of the correlation of forces, in other words, the war gaming of the Central Front. And the and the as the 1980s wore on, the results kept coming back. You know, we're not going to win. And of course, the only option was to go chemical and nuclear, and that is basically you know uh, uh, taking a risk with the end of the world as we know it. And even the Russians weren't keen on doing that, so they were in despair. You know, towards the end. And then, of course, at the end, 80% of the Red Army disappeared, and that was the end of that. But people now know that you can't basically expect to have success if you're just basing it on daydreams, you know, what you hope will have happen. Reality always has a vote. In fact, they cannot vote you most of the time. And reality is only basically discovered uh, and dealt with if you have something like a, a game, a war game that is validated. And that's what the historical war games are all about. So, so speaking of the Russians, uh, in your book, uh, the War Games Handbook, 
Mm -hmm. Uh, You didn't list this as one of your political games, but I put it in the category of political games, which is the game that you did uh, called the Russian Civil War. Oh, yes. (laughs) That was fun. Uh, Russian Civil War was a chaotic situation. You know, people were constantly changing sides. Uh, people, you know, the histories look, to, you know, basically uh, portrayed as the reds versus the whites. Well, that's big picture. But when you get down into the grass, it's a lot more complicated. So, you know, basically in just historically, you know, historically inaccurately representing that chaos, it was almost tragic comic. It was funny. You know, we had these purge rules and et cetera, et cetera. And, and so they, people were switching sides. Um, and, you know, Trotsky deserves credit for basically getting the army whipped into shape and what have you, the Red Army. But his, he was always, a lot of times, he was always outnumbered. And, but the people who really saved the day were the ones who basically made the deals. And it wasn't always Trotsky. He was a fairly much of a, uh, uh, no, you know, no deals. But there were people making deals to get these various factions to either bow out, uh, to join the Red Army, uh, or whatever. And this was the key to that game. So, yes, it was a political game, but all games are political. Uh, we tend to be blindsided by the fact that in World War II, it was unusual in that the, the three major powers, you know, well, Britain, United States, and Russia, all agreed that the only victory they will accept is unconditional. Uh, you know, because, you know, uh, the allies, the Europeans had learned their lessons with the Germans, the end of World War II, the the apparatus that basically uh, led to World War II was still in place. You know, the German government, and what have you, they they, they had a, a republic, but it didn't last. And then the Nazis came in and it was a it was basically a, 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 a you know, one man rule all over again, just like with the Kaiser. Hitler was about as bright as the Kaiser was when it came to military strategy. Um and he was he was basically blindsided, blinded like a lot of Germans were with the easy victories. But they were won by the army because the army, uh, even before the Nazis, you know, got into power, they were basically rebuilding. They were learning the lessons from World War One, which a lot of the Allies sort of you know didn't pay as much attention to since they had the victory disease. We called it. You learn that's the old saying. You learn more from uh, you know failure than from from uh, success. Um, but a war game allows you to do that even if you're the victor. And there was a lot, and like I say, there was a lot of resistance in that initially when they brought us in. Andy Marshall was the only major ally I had down there. He realized it. But over the years, by the time he retired, geez, five or ten years ago, um, finally after, God, being in office for 50 years. Um, and, and then one reason they never put him on early retirement, because a lot of people realize he may be a pain in the ass, but he's an accurate pain in the ass. You know, he, he'll save your bacon, even if you don't, don't particularly want it saved. He's the doctor's visit you don't want to make, but you really it'll save your life. Um, but now, the United States is basically, uh, you know, wedded to that. Uh, now, it still gets in problem with the, uh, with the, with the politicians and what have you, um, uh, who say, hey, we got a big army, we should do something with it. No, you shouldn't. Uh, and that's a hard thing for you know politicians to swallow because they say we're spending all the money on the military, uh, and, and if we don't use it, what's the point? This is the point is it's there, it's good, and the pot- potential enemies know it. So they will not make moves, uh, realizing that if the American troops show it up, they own the battlefield. Uh, you know, and and even if you develop some uh, interesting, you know, irregular warfare uh, tactics like this, the Saddam Plan D did in Iraq after uh, 2003, uh, they that will be defeated as well. 
uh, and you can't that can't do that with an army that is that is willing to rapidly change, adapt, uh, and retrain. And that's what the United States was doing all through, you know, from, especially from uh, 2003 to uh, well to the present actually, uh, because we have a handful of uh, troops, 5,000 troops in Iraq, and they are a potent force. The Iranians want them out of there. Because they realize, not just as a tripwire, you know, that if, if we kill a lot of Americans, the Americans will send more. No, just those Americans that are there controlling air power, you know, advising uh, the Iraqis and what have you uh, on tactics and what have you in training. Uh, uh, there will be a major obstacle uh, to any, you know, lightning takeover of Iraq by the Iranians. So they recognize they saw the same thing uh, in Syria when we were backing the Kurds. Who were basically one of many large factions in in uh, Syria, <clears throat> but they were the ones who basically took Raqqa, the ISIL capital, and they did it the smart way, uh, with um, uh, with uh, missile armed, uh, hellfire armed uh, UAVs and, uh, and and basically GPS guided artillery, um, and uh, the the Kurds appreciated that because they they basically did city fighting, and they won with far fewer casualties than ISIL. The same thing happened in Mosul. Uh, which was basically, uh, well, we had about as much involvement in the battle for Mosul as we did in Raqqa, which means minimal. But the Iraqis had bought, uh, they could, we wouldn't sell them uh, missile-armed uh, uh, you know, UAVs, but they could buy them from the Chinese. And they sang the praises of the Chinese clones of the, uh, of the Predator and the Hellfire missile, uh, which worked quite well, because that saved a lot of lives. Because the uh, Iraqis discovered that to really make progress in city fighting, not get that they bogged down in a basically mutual murder fest, um, they sent in their special forces, which were a limited you know unit. They were only like twenty or twenty-five thousand troops, and they really wanted to lose these guys because they were the best trained, the best, most reliable troops they had. So in order to keep the morale up and to basically not get all these guys killed off, they had to use a lot of smart bombs. Which the Americans and, and other and other NATO air forces delivered, um, and of course the Iraqis were very proud of the fact that they had their own predators with the uh, Wulong, the Chinese uh, uh, UAVs with missiles, uh, and those were used. They, those strikes were called in by Iraqi ground controllers. Um, so whenever the Iraqi special forces got into a tight spot, they would get on the horn in Arabic to their uh, uh, to their uh, UAVs overhead. They said, "There's the target. We'll mark it." Blah blah blah, and boom, there goes the opposition, and the advance continues. Uh, again, you only get that sort of thing if you have a well-trained force, uh, and and basically with weapons that are better than anything the enemy can counter, and that's what the combination of the um, of the precision air support. Uh, and well-trained troops, you know, makes. Uh, the Iraqis discovered it, but, you know, they obviously forgot it because by, uh, 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 you know, after they won the war with, um, uh, with ISIL, uh, they're fighting the problem of uh, corruption in the military and, you know, basically losing the edge they once had. So we're about time to wrap up, and we've got to talk with the p- current political situation and what's gone o- on over this summer, we've got to talk about your other two political games. Uh, we haven't talked about uh, uh, the origins of World War One or World War Two. World War One, a lot of people don't know about. It was done uh, uh, for Sid Saxon book. Yeah. 
and but uh and then you did also the uh canadian civil war but yeah. two that stand out to me and in fact i was just able to get a copy of of uh one of the these games chicago chicago but mm-hmm. you did very early on uh in spi's career and even before or before spi you did a game called up against the wall mfr and then yeah. you took that and did chicago chicago which was the 1968 riots yeah what was the motivation there and and tell the listeners what it's not really about fighting uh the cops and the crowds it's more about influence right Exactly. The uh, again, you know, uh, man from Mars analysis of what's going on in these situations up against the wall uh, was done for the uh, Columbia Spectator. I was a student. I didn't graduate until 70. I was basically a part time student throughout the 60s because I was running SPI or starting up SPI or designing games for Avalon Hill. I was otherwise engaged. Uh, but the uh, they said, could you do a game? They knew I was doing the games. In fact, some of the guys, you know, in uh, you know, basically behind the uprising, as we were in '68, the takeover, uh, were war gamers and wanted to work with me on uh, the 1914 game, Lenny Glenn. And um, I said, sure. I says, uh, two, uh, you know, one one condition. I says, uh, I you get to use the name I choose, and I choose up against the wall, mother, blah blah. blah. And um, they said, sure, because this is Columbia, the 60s, anything goes. Um, and I basically, it was the influence game, because basically they were playing, and this, this, this was a little unpopular with a lot of the participants, because basically it made clear that it was basically, you know, virtue signaling and, and basically trying to drum up influence to change, you know, government policy and school policy. And it didn't make a lot of people involved look very good. But you know, I'll give them credit. They they basically published it pretty much as is. They made a few changes, and then one of the guys who went on to become a, a politicized doctor, I forget his name, uh, he took partial design credit. I don't know what the hell he did, but I didn't make a big deal out of it. Um, but they let me write a de- designer's notes and what have you, and that all got published in the uh, in the Spectator. And it was quite popular. I mean, it was easy to play. Um, and so when they had the Chicago riots in 68, which was about the same time, yeah, uh, those actually, the, I think the Chicago, Chicago game came, no, it came later because it was on 68, but it was done in the early 70s, 72, I think. Yeah. So up against the wall came first and, um, the, uh, uh the, uh, the basic, the basic concept was solid. You know, uh, I think anybody doing a game since then has to use that basic technology. It wasn't about, you know, who had how many uh, people, you know, on the street or how many troops, as it were, uh, how many cops you had. It was what influence you had on the basically the media. Uh, Media is always important uh, because they basically, you know, tell people what they think is happening. um, And that influences public policy. Uh, and that's what they were all trying to do. Now, the uh, the kids involved, the SCS, the, what the Students for Democratic Society, a uh, bunch of lefties, um, they um, uh, they understood that because that was basically the communist, the Bolshevik playbook. And any any basically uh, any totalitarian organization in the 20th century that includes the uh, you know the religious dictatorship now ruling in Iran. Uh, and you name it, you know, North Korea's run using those techniques. Uh, they're very effective, at least for the short run. Uh, my, my dad was actually recruited by them while he was in graduate school uh, mm-hmm. in the in the 1970s when the riots were happening on different campuses. They wanted him yeah. to come in and join their ranks. He said, no, nah, I don't think so. 
Nah, because basically in the long run, it didn't mean squat. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, as I pointed out at the time when they asked me, in fact, Lenny Glenn called me up. I was working as a night watchman to, you know, pay the rent as it were, uh, through that period, most of that period. And he called me up when I was still on duty as it was like, you know, five o'clock in the morning. And then he says, Hey Jim, guess where I am? And I says, no, where are you? I says, and, and Kirk and Grayson, uh, Kirk's office. I said, who's Kirk? Oh yeah. The president of the university. I said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, we took it over. What do you think? I says, I think it's spring, which it was. But anyway, that's another issue because I, I think my, my thesis advisor, I was taking an honors uh, history, uh, you know, of course it was, which was basically throwing me in with a bunch of, you know, and, and masters, uh, you know, uh, students, um, and he had just come back from Italy, where he had got, we had became an expert on Italian fascism, and we talked about what was going on with the, uh, with the, with the, you know, the, uh, the thing in '68 at Columbia. And he's basically said, it's all about pussy. I says, you know, everybody gets hot and excited, especially the girls. And that the guys just love that. Uh, but then again, I, I was also uh, asked out, uh, God, I guess maybe it was in 70 or something like that, to go and talk at uh, Champaign-Urbana on war games. That's the, that was, at the time, that was the center, as it were, of the, uh, the computer revolution. It, it, it subsequently moved to, to California. But anyway, they were doing a lot of the pioneering work on uh, user interface and uh, and uh, intelligence systems and what have you. And I was talking to some of the radicals out there, and I says, you realize that, you know, once they once they get rid of the draft, you'll have you'll, you'll have a manpower problem. And he says, yeah, they knew it. They understood it. The main thing that was getting all those uh, kids into the uh, into the into the demos uh, was the fact that they didn't want to be drafted. Um, and uh, you know, I don't know. I don't think a lot of people in, in Washington realized that it was very simple, very pragmatic. You know, it wasn't ideological. He says, I don't want to go fight in Vietnam. Although uh, Al and I did a book, Dirty Little Secrets of Vietnam. One of the things we discovered, very few, very, very few of the people who were drafted were, you know, uh, sent to, uh, sent to uh, uh, Vietnam as, as, as combat troops. They were almost entirely uh, volunteers. Um, uh, but that got lost in the, you know, in the muddle, as it were. That wasn't, that wasn't the, uh, the narrative, as they say. Um, and, uh, but the reality was that the, the, the records are, are, you know, still extant, and that's what we referred to. Uh, it was basically a volunteers' war, and the volunteers were getting fed up with it because, the, as the Vietnamese pointed out, after the war was over, when they were told, well, you, you lost every battle, and he said that was irrelevant. And they they were right because they basically they basically admired George Washington's you know uh, strategy, and his strategy was you don't have to beat them on the battlefield, you just have to keep an a force in being. Now, uh, you know the truth be told, again looking at it like you know <laughs> reality, uh, they lost in South Vietnam the North Vietnamese, uh, and the uh, twice they tried to invade you know across the border with tanks you know a, a conventional invasion. The first one in 72 was defeated because we were still supporting the uh, South Vietnamese with air power and supplies, but not with troops. Um, but by 75, the political climate in, in, the, in the America had changed and we cut off all support for the Vietnamese. So when they came across the border a second time, uh, and they did this in part because they realized the South Vietnamese had no more American air support, no more any support. They were short in ammunition, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they basically, you know, swept through and took everything. Uh, people blame that on a lot of things, but it's basically logistics. 
and logistics and air support. Those were the decisive factors in the 72 invasion. They could have been the decisive factors in the 75 invasion. Uh, and that might, and if that one had failed, I think they might have lost their, they might have gone straight back to the negotiating table to negotiate something. But at that point, you would have had, would have had two Vietnams, which I can point out historically, again, this is the reality check that war games force you to, to uh, adhere to, is that Vietnam had never been united before that. It had always been broken up into various little, you know, uh, uh, sub-states, as it were, throughout its history. The French united it as a colony, uh, but that really wasn't a unified country, per se, but that gave the uh, the communists the idea, well, you know, it isn't a, it isn't a Vietnamese uh, Vietnam unless it's, it's all united under one government. Uh, the most Vietnamese would have rather had a democratic government where they could own property and they, you know, the usual things. Uh, that again, showing you how the communists work, they basically promised all the things that democracy would deliver, but they didn't deliver. Uh, they had the farmers could uh, got their own farms for a while, then they were collectivized and they lost them. And as I pointed out to the to kids up at, at at Columbia, I says they talked about, hey, isn't it great in the Soviet Union? I says, no, it isn't so great. Because one thing you don't realize is one thing the Bolsheviks did: the Tsar had freed the serfs in the mid-60s, about the same time you know, the United States, you know, freed the slaves. Serfs was a form of slavery, but anyway, uh, they were freed and they were allowed to own land and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the, the Soviets came in and after experimenting with, again, letting the, the, the farmers, you know, run their own farms and what have you, Stalin came in and basically, you know, got rid of all that after Lenin had conveniently died. And because Lenin was willing to play with that, he was more of a student in, of history than than uh, than Stalin was. Um, and you had all these, but they call them kulaks. They were successful farmers. These were anathema. And and from then on, uh, Soviet agricultural productivity declined to the point where at the end of the Cold War, Russia couldn't feed itself. Uh, so this goes to show you, if you look at reality, uh, it's very educational. But a lot of politicians, a lot of people, you know, in general, you know, basically get tied to ideals, you know, or, or you know, their, their, their ideal. I wouldn't call those ideals, but, you know, their own version, hypothesis of, of, you know, of what a perfect world would be uh, without looking at what has really happened in other parts of the world where they've tried the reality they are aiming for. And so it goes. Reality isn't all that popular. Right. Well, that's a good point for us to end up. Uh, we'll tease the next time we talk about this in four weeks. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about SPIs and your forays into science fiction and fantasy. And then uh, hit some of the greatest hits of uh, Jim Dunnigan that we haven't uh, mentioned yet. Uh, especially some of the ratings over on uh, Board Game Geek. Uh, we're going to bring up and talk about some of the games that they've rated highly over there that we haven't talked about. So that's what we'll be doing next time. And until then, we'll see you. Okay. In two weeks. Bye. Bye.